Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the indictment today of Republican Congressman George Santos on 13 counts, seven on wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of lying to the House of Representatives on financial forms. Joining us is a reporter who has followed the saga of this serial liar from before he was recently elected is Will Bredeman, a senior researcher at the Daily Beast who previously covered politics for Crane's New York Business and the New York Observer where he utilized public records and social media to score scoops on everyone from Michael Bloomberg to Jeffrey Epstein to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He has a number of recent articles at the Daily Beast on George Santos, including George Santos's massive campaign loans may not be legal, and we'll discuss calls for Santos to resign coming from Republican lawmakers, but not from House Speaker McCarthy. Then we'll assess Putin's brief address at the scaled-down military parade yesterday, marking Russia's most important remembrance of its World War II sacrifices on Victory Day. We will discuss Putin's grievances and the Wagner mercenary head Prigozhin's crude critique of the boss's parade, quote, Happy Victory Day to all our grandfathers, and what are we celebrating is the big question. You just need to remember about them, and don't F around on Red Square. Joining us is Michael Gorham, Professor of Russian Studies at the University of Florida, He's the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia, in addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communication, and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, He has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of Russian trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, and tweeting presidents. Then finally, we'll look into Sunday's important election in Turkey, where there is a good possibility the authoritarian kleptocrat, who is a friend of Putin and more of a headache for Biden and NATO, could be voted out, although Erdogan may not accept the results. Joining us is Elmira Barasli, director of the Bard College Globalization and International Affairs Program and the CEO of Interrupter, a weekly foreign policy newsletter. We'll discuss her article at CNN, Turkey's Erdogan is in the fight of his political life. The real winner may be Putin. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org, contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Will Brenneman, who is a senior researcher of the Daily Beast, who previously covered politics for Crane to New York Business and the New York Observer, where he utilised public records and social media to score scoops on everybody from Michael Bloomberg to Jeffrey Epstein to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And he has a number of recent articles at the Daily Beast on George Santos, including George Santos's massive campaign loans may not be legal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Brenneman. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us, Will. And having followed Santos and particularly his donors for some time, what do you make of the fact that today he faced seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of lying to the House of Representatives on financial forms? Well, I I think what's interesting and will be interesting to see going forward is whether we will see a superseding uh, indictment uh, down the road that will be will include some of the other um, other questions or or or, or matters that we know the that the feds and also uh, the Nassau County District Attorney and the New York State Attorney General uh, have been investigating. So I, I would certainly, as things progress, keep an eye out for a, a state level, some sort of state level action uh, and or a future uh, indictment, which may uh, include more charges. Uh, you know, certainly things are moving very quickly and it, it does look, uh, you know, looking at this indictment, which basically turns on um basically a, a, a single, uh, uh, you know, other one other or rather two other people, one uh, political consultant and one contributor uh, and on one company uh, that Santos uh, was a, a member of and a controlling partner in. Uh, I, you know, I, you, I wonder if the, the federal government it is possible that they simply went with what was cleanest and quickest and that there might be future uh, indictments, you know, or superseding indictments, future amendments uh, down the road. That's not guaranteed, but it's certainly possible, uh, given uh, the the breadth of activity uh, that Mr. Santos has engaged in and, uh, you know, has alleged to have been to have engaged in. But is it possible that the feds had to move quickly because they thought he was a flight risk? After all, they did seize his passport and... He's out on a cash bail of half a million dollars, which three anonymous people put up. Yes, and it's certainly uh, interesting to, to consider who might have uh, provided those funds. Whether he's a flight risk, I can't really assess. I, I think confiscating passports is, is not unusual. Certainly it's a large bail. Um, certainly he has uh, citizenship in Brazil, but uh, I believe he is also... Uh, you know, faces uh, potential criminal action there as well. Um, I, I wonder, like I said, the, the we know that the FEC, sorry, we know that the uh, Department of Justice asked the FEC, that's the Federal Elections Commission, uh, to pause their own uh, probe of George Santos so that they could move forward. Uh, you know, so which indicates that the 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 uh, the the Fed, the Department of Justice, wanted to preempt any other agency's action, uh, and that may have uh, exerted some pressure on their timetable. I think how public this uh, was may have had some influence. Uh, it's also worth considering, of course, that uh, Congressman Santos recently announced he's running for re-election. 
uh, and, uh, you know, does there is another election coming up in uh, 2024 uh, that, uh, you know, he will certainly we know he's going to face a primary uh, and uh, would certainly face a, a general election. All these may have been uh, factors in the Department of Justice's uh, decision to act at this point. Uh, again, it's not uncommon in cases like this for there to be an initial indictment and later, which contains the simplest uh, and most straightforward or the Department of Justice judges to be the simplest and most straightforward uh, set of charges. And then there'll be a, super, a superseding indictment, which includes uh, some of the more complicated and, and comprehensive uh, uh, findings of, of the uh, federal government. Um, but uh, so, yes, it will be I'll be interested to keep an eye out for that as, as things progress. But outside the courthouse today in central Islip, New York, George Santos said he will not resign. Uh, he called the indictments a witch hunt and he said he plans to run for re-election. So sure. I guess in a way, my puzzlement about this man is he's not exactly a good crook if all the accusations against him are true. He's not very skillful at covering his tracks. So that leads one to sort of suspect that the guy might just simply have psychological problems. He must have absolutely thick skin. And he's somewhat delusional because at a January event at the Conrad Hotel to celebrate House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's finally getting the speakership, and this was a big event full of donors and the new members of Congress. Sanders was asked about how he's feeling, etc. And according to two people at this event, Santos said, this is an event for the new speaker, but I'm the most famous person in the room. But he's not famous oh. for good reasons. Well, I mean, there is a certain, there's the, the old saying, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, though I, I think that can be argued. I, I really, uh, you know, don't, I'm not, I'm not a trained psychologist, uh, so I, I'm not going to speculate about anyone's mental health. Uh, what I can say is this, the system uh, essentially uh, disincentivizes an indicted politician from resigning. Uh, if we cast our memory uh, back uh, to 2014, which does seem like quite a long time ago, my uh, old congressman, Michael Grimm of New York, uh, was indicted, ran for re-election under indictment, won, and then resigned. It's not uncommon in situations like this to see uh, elected officials essentially use their seat as a bargaining chip. I'm not going to say that, that Congressman Santos is going to do that, uh, but you know, essentially that in exchange for taking a lighter sentence, pleading to a lesser charge, uh, they, in the process and in, in the deal, uh, resign their seat. Uh, and uh, that it becomes part of the negotiations down the road. Uh, so, like I said, there, there is just a disincentive to resigning the seat. Clearly, this is somebody who, you know, likes the spotlight, uh, worked very hard through two election cycles to get himself a great deal of publicity, uh, re- opened uh, a number of business ventures, uh, you know, certainly uh, some of them questionable in their operations. Uh, certainly somebody who is attracted to money, is attracted to publicity, is attracted to power. Uh, all of that is not uncommon among politicians in general. What we have is somebody who uh, seems to have gone about uh, it, yes, as you acknowledge, in a bit of a sloppy way. 
I suppose what's fascinating about, about Congressman Santos is that he is clearly more sophisticated than the large number of, uh, you know, routine and, and numerous uh, uh, political scammers that are out there. Uh, and, you know, of, of whom there and of which there are, are you know, many hundreds and many thousands. Uh, but, you know, went about this in, in some cases in a, a sloppy or, or way or in a way that um, was unnecessarily uh, uh, obvious or complicated or, or exposed him more legally uh, than it needed to. And so, I, you know, again, is somebody who is a bit of a not a complete political neophyte, but uh, a relative newcomer to politics, uh, but not a newcomer to the uh, world of, of sort of uh, questionable uh, business engagements. My very, very first story about uh, Mr. Santos, uh, you know, was about his uh, involvement in what turned out to be a uh, or was alleged to be a Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, that was run out of Florida. And the company by the way, that's in the indictment is referred to as Company One, uh, matches the description of a company called Redstone Strategies, uh, which Mr. Santos formed with a uh, you know former colleague uh, from the alleged Ponzi scheme. Um, all of which is to say, uh, you know, certainly a, a, a character, an unusual character in the American political scene. Uh, and we're going to, I guess, find out uh, whether he was, in fact, a uh, a criminal. But you've written about some of these shady foreign connections uh, with uh, an Albanian connection to a disgraced Albanian prime minister. I don't know whether that's the same guy that the FBI character McGonagall was involved with. No. Who, the, the former head of FBI counterintelligence in New York, who <laughs> might well have been a mole for the Russians. Then you've got, you mentioned Redstone and the $400,000 in a bank in Uzbekistan. And then you've got, what was he, a relative of a Russian oligarch who also put up a lot of money? Yes, Andrew Intrader, the the cousin uh, and money manager for Victor Vexelberg. Um, You know... The, the uh, actually the, the I should say the Albanian uh, uh, character was from the opposite side of the Albanian uh, political spectrum uh, from the folks who uh, allegedly recruited uh, former director McGonagall. Uh, th- we're going to find out. It has been unclear to me from the outset uh, to what extent there is something more elaborate going on here involving foreign actors or whether. This was a case of people who may be somewhat disreputable or, or have uh, uh, reputational issues uh, sort of being drawn to somebody who uh, was very interested in their money uh, and very interested in uh, political power and was able to present himself as reputable, uh, you know, again, had a, a what appeared to be a, a good looking resume, although it, it clearly fell apart upon further examination, um, you know, there is a, you know, we're, we're go- it's yet to be seen. Now, and Mr. Intrader has, to the New York Times, cast himself as a victim of George Santos. Whether that's credible or, or true, I, I cannot speak to at this point. Uh, but he alleges he believed that he was working with somebody like himself who was descended uh, from Ukrainian Holocaust survivors. Uh, and, uh, you know, had an interest in Republican politics. Uh, he was relatively young. 
uh, you know, uh, could be could present well at times. Uh, again, purported to have a, a good resume uh, that, again, purported, uh, you know, and that he just, you know, agreed to invest money uh, first with the uh, the alleged Ponzi scheme, which later on made deposits in a bank. Yes, you mentioned in, in the National Bank of Uzbekistan. We don't know uh, what that was for or why. Uh, you know, and then later on invested heavily uh, in the uh, campaign uh, and also invested heavily in a political action committee uh, at the New York level uh, that was run by George Santos's sister and, and uh, appeared to, you know, recruit and retain many of the people who were attached to his campaign. Uh, we're going to see if Mr. Intrader uh, is going to appear as one of the characters uh, in this uh, uh current legal drama, uh, you know, and I suppose we'll, we will learn more as, as things move forward. Uh, but I would say that in a, in a way, uh, political power is, is the ultimate sanction and the ultimate form of, repu- of, of reputability, validity, credibility for many people uh, who may have money and may have influence in a, in a local way, but do not have the level of power that they want or the level of influence that they want. And a lot of people uh, who, you know, appear sort of disreputable. I think uh, I gave the example uh, of there was a, a family in Queens that ran a restaurant. Uh, one of the one of the family members was a migrant smuggler, uh, also was heavily, you know, was he- that family was heavily involved in, in the uh, Santos campaign, uh, donated to the Santos campaign, received a lot of money from the campaign. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, of, of unusual characters, I should say, uh, around the around George Santos. And I think what is as yet unresolved is whether this is something elaborate or whether this is simply one person who was able to attract all of these characters who were looking for a chance at power, uh, for a chance at, at influence. Just in the last couple of minutes, then, well, do we know at this point how George Santos managed to loan his campaign seven hundred thousand uh, dollars? That that is still a mystery. As we reported in the the first uh, uh, article you alluded to regarding the campaign loans, we know he had a circle of of clients or alleged clients for the DeVolder organization, which was his uh, you know in house business uh, for much of his life, Mister uh, Santos went by George DeVolder or George DeVolder Santos, uh, DeVolder being his mother's name. Uh, the what uh, the New York Times reported was that he uh, sort of uh, helped actuate or seal a transaction that was the sale of a yacht between two of these clients that we had earlier identified. You know, this probably did not produce the whole of this money uh, of the, uh, you know, and uh, given that he is, uh, you know, the part of the, the indictment is our allegations that he misrepresented his earnings, misrepresented his wealth. Uh, I would take anything that George Santos submitted at this point as being uh, not wholly reliable and perhaps uh, only uh, containing uh, fragments or, or, or sort of uh, uh, you know, very small elements of the truth. I, I would be hesitant to, uh, do I believe that he probably loaned some money to his campaign? Yes. Uh, do, did he, are those numbers accurate? I really have no idea. And, and it can often be useful speaking broadly, uh, 
to uh, make it look like you're putting a lot, put a lot, put money into a campaign to try to represent to donors that you are a serious candidate. And also we've had uh, some recent court decisions that say, you know, if you loan your campaign a certain amount of money, uh, you can continue to pay yourself back uh, even after the election and so forth. So there are advantages to uh, representing uh, that you have loaned a lot of money to your own campaign. So just in closing, he'll have a hard time, obviously, in the, in the primary. But how did the Democrats lose this one? What went wrong with that wealthy guy? That uh, Was he just living in a bubble that ran against him that seemed uh, to Mr. think he, he had it locked up? Uh, you know, uh, there was a, a somewhat, con- you know, contested primary on the Democratic side. Um, you know, whether the Democrats ran their their best candidate, uh, I this I can't uh, really assess. I think there are those who would feel that Mr. Zimmerman, uh, you know, has been uh, weighed in the scales and found wanting. Uh, but... You know, there certainly will be a contested or or it seems very likely to be a contested Democratic primary at this point. The truth is that even though uh, the local Republican organization facilitated uh, Mr. Santos's campaign and also uh, took a bunch of money from his campaign and provided some money for his campaign, the local he's not of the, the sort of local Nassau County Republican operation. And most of those folks see him as a um you know, sort of a detriment and, and a, a dead weight upon the party's fortunes. So I, I would be very surprised to see him get a great deal of organizational and institutional support locally, certainly not at the scale that he enjoyed last time out. Uh, I, I think we're going to see a, a, an interesting Democratic primary. It remains to be seen, uh, you know, what candidate emerges. This is a, a, a district that Joe Biden won. Uh, in 2020. And what can't be overlooked is that when Santos carried the seat, uh, there was a very strong and spirited uh, Republican gubernatorial uh, 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 campaign being run by Lee Zeldin of Long Island, uh, you know, against Kathy Hochul, who was uh, uh, the you know Democrat, uh, Democratic governor of New York. Uh, and Kathy Hochul, uh, you know, uh, underperformed across Long Island. Uh, while uh, Lee Zeldin overperformed. The top of the ticket uh, in 2022 was pulling Santos up. Uh, and in fact, he underperformed in the district as a whole relative to Lee Zeldin. Uh, you know, I, I would not be surprised that in 2024, we see the top of the ticket pulling uh, uh, George Santos down. Uh, so, uh, you know, when we are looking at a, a presidential race, uh, most likely with Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. Uh, so... Uh, yes, uh, I, I think it, it, it is. He certainly faces an extremely uphill battle in his own pri- in his own party's primary in the general election, um, and you know, again, we'll we'll see if he uh, if he makes it to to twenty if he's still a candidate in twenty twenty four. Sure, just but in closing, of course, today Biden spoke in upstate New York, in a, one of the states that the Republicans have just picked up. So clearly they're targeting him. And in the, in the last round, uh, the DCCC, obviously, they, my understanding is that they actually hired interns to do opposition research on Santos, who clearly were inadequate. So it's obviously going to be a battleground. And just a final mention, of course, that Speaker of the House, McCarthy, was asked about should Santos resign, and he said no, he shouldn't resign. So that's the latest. Will, anything to add? 
of course, uh, Kevin McCarthy's got a pretty slender uh, House majority. Uh, obviously, New York really, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, greater New York metro area, you know, really did prove a great boon for, you know, the Republicans the last cycle. You know, and certainly we do see a lot of seats that are, you know, Democratic leading, at least at the national level, that happened to uh, swing Republican in the last cycle, or at the very least are competitive seats, swing seats. So, yes, uh, it does not surprise me at all that we are seeing uh, Joe Biden come to New York, that we're seeing uh, serious effort being put into New York. Uh, you know, yes, the, uh, you know, Zimmerman was a, a, a Robert Zimmerman, the Democrat who ran last time, a candidate of questionable quality. The D triple triple C's work. Uh, they put a lot of money into this into this race, uh, but didn't really turn up much at all. You know, the, the opposition research you alluded to was really focused more on Santos's uh, political positions than on his uh, sort of questionable uh, associations. And in fact, my, even my story about the Ponzi scheme it was a sort of a footnote uh, in that document that came out a few months after my initial story. So, it, you know, it does seem the Democrats have gotten serious about this and other seats in the, the sort of greater, greater New York metro area. Will Brenneman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Will Brenneman, who is a senior researcher at the Daily Beast, who previously covered politics for Crane's New York Business and the New York Observer, where he utilised public records and social media to score scoops on everybody from Michael Bloomberg to Jeffrey Epstein to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And he has a number of recent articles at the Daily Beast on George Santos, including George Santos's massive campaign loans may not be legal. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing Putin's brief address and scale-down military parade yesterday on Victory Day and the Wagner head Progozin's crude critique of the boss's parade. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. Adrift in a world of my own I play the game But to my real shame You've left me to dream all alone Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gorham, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. And in addition to co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of the New Media Communication, and The Culture of Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. And he's recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of Russian trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, and tweeting presidents. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gorham. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And what did you make of yesterday's victory parade in Red Square? It was clearly incredibly diminished uh, compared to earlier events. I mean, basically, very, very small number of military units marching, mostly cadets, as it happened. The That's only right. tanks were the World War Two T-34, just one tank. And also, Prigozhin threw some shade on the whole event, 
basically saying that Russians don't deserve to celebrate the World War II victory of their grandfathers. Just to quote Prigozhin, happy victory day to all of our grandfathers and what are we celebrating is a big question. You just need to remember about them and don't mess around. Well, he didn't actually say mess around. It said something quite profane, which I can't repeat. Don't mess around on Red Square. So all Putin had up there with him on the parade was the leaders of Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Armenia, and Belarus. So a pretty sad display. What what was your take on it? If you uh, take into consideration that uh, apparently um, really only the leader of uh, Kyrgyzstan had this this visit on his uh, agenda a good month or so before all the others uh, seem to have been called, maybe with the exception of Lukashenko from Belarus, uh, seem to have been called at the last minute or coaxed at the last minute to uh, to make an appearance. Watching it on state television, uh, they got plenty of screen time, these leaders, uh, to kind of uh, project the image of a uh, an international support group of sorts, uh, Politburo 2.0 or 3.0, uh, but I have to say none of them looked uh, particularly thrilled or engaged uh, to be there. And Lukashenko, the Belarusian dictator, he left the parade in an ambulance and went to the airport. So yes, he's I, had some he, uh, he's had some health issues uh, as of late. Uh, his uh, you know he walks with great difficulty, can barely make it up the stairs, and may, he's already had one heart attack. So. Um, yeah, he's certainly uh, he's certainly not in in in, in his best state. So I, th- I think uh, that certainly was uh, legitimate health issues that probably brought him him back pretty quickly. So what do you think is going to happen with Prigozhin? Because now you have, and we've had for the longest time him going public, and he's able to speak publicly. And the stuff that he says would put any ordinary Russian in jail because you're not supposed to even mention that there's a war going on in Ukraine, let alone criticize it. But he he's free to attack the military all the time, the Ministry of Defense. And now he's accusing them of basically bugging out, retreating from the battle in Bakhmut with the 72nd Motorized Brigade, which apparently did just disappear. And there's a huge hole in the front after all that fighting in Bakhmut. And the impression has always been that Putin wanted a victory in, in Bakhmut, before the Victory Day parade yesterday. Is that your impression? Uh, that desire certainly has been there, and they've been fighting for months and months. Um, and, uh, I mean, Prigozhin is a, uh entrepreneur. He's a, a man of the media. He has his own media conglomerate. He's, if I uh, might remind you, is the, um, the brains behind the Russian troll factory that was... Uh, trolling elections in 2016 and the Brexit vote uh, shortly thereafter or before. Uh, so he is uh, he's a savvy uh, player as far as using mass media and uh, knows how to get get people's attention. And uh, so I think that's uh, just an, another example of it. He didn't uh, technically call Putin out directly. He referred to a uh, grandfather, uh, a grandfather who may may be brilliant or may be an idiot we'll, we we will soon find out fact of the matter is he and his uh, fighters who are truly some of the better and more capable fighters uh this uh Wagner group had their backs to the wall for uh, 
for uh, months now and uh, are pretty much looking at uh, uh, a losing situation either way. And uh, it appears that uh, the Minister of Defense and the uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs are uh, looking with glee at his his predicament and basically just letting his people uh, buy time for them, the rest of the military, to dig the trenches and uh, build in their defensive positions while Prigozhin and his men uh, fight the good fight, but make make little progress with very uh, very diminished uh, armaments. So uh, the future doesn't look good for him either way. I'd, I'd be a, a bit surprised if uh, uh, he were uh, taken out um, one way or another uh, by by the Kremlin. I, I don't think he. Uh, has the uh, stature, frankly, to warrant that. He's certainly not a threat to the Ministry of Defense or to the to uh, Gerasimov, the, the the guy who's calling the shots on this war. Um, but um, and and he's actually playing a, a useful role in um, kind of uh, letting helping let out the steam for some of the uh, what are called in Russian turbo patriots who are a, a bit frustrated and angry that this war isn't going as well as it should be, and Russia isn't being as a, as aggressive as it should be. The idea being best have uh, somebody that you can control in this position than somebody that you can't control, like uh, uh, another uh, colorful figure from the Donbass, a guy named Igor, Igor Stilkov, who was a part of that campaign in 2014 and is also quite vocal about his frustration with the Russian military. You don't mean Igor Gherkin? Uh, yeah, Strelkov is his, uh, is his, is his uh, nom de guerre, his, his uh, pen, his war name. I see. The same guy then. Yeah. Same person, different name, right? Yeah. So back to Putin's speech, four-minute speech yesterday and the Victory Day, the scaled-down Victory Day parade. You know, And obviously they, they were nervous about the drones that hit the Kremlin a couple of days before. But one of the things that happened in, in the speech was that Putin actually used the phrase Ukrainian people, which goes against everything that he's been saying. You know, that's not a real country. Was that a slip of the tongue or what? No, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think so. I, I'm, I think it would be uh, more brash of him to, um, deny the existence of the Ukrainian people in a in a speech like this I think he's he's been known to hold that opinion that's what he told George W Bush way back when uh, um, the uh, the story goes but I think in a speech like this his uh, his more his more his preferred tack is to uh, portray the Ukrainian population as uh, un- unwilling dupes for a, uh, a, a Nazified, corrupt leadership who themselves are puppets of NATO and the West, and as he likes to say, uh, who are more than willing and capable of fighting to, unto, to the last Ukrainian, in other words, until the last Ukrainian is dead on the battlefield. So uh, this is one of his... Um, preferred narratives is to portray the Ukrainian people as uh, the people who he is actually uh, trying to save from uh, from the grips of the of, of the West and from their corrupt uh, from their corrupt leader 
but I don't I don't think that was a slip of the tongue. That was a prepared text. So um, it was obviously in the script. He was he was rolling out a lot of his his favorite tropes, like the the fact that uh, the uh, war was unleashed on Russia by uh, the West. And the fact that uh, the West is, uh, you know, a, a hotbed of uh, Russophobia and uh, is trampling over traditional values. He crammed a lot into those four minutes, sort of a a, 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 a best of uh, laundry mm-hmm. list. And the sad thing is this, uh, you know, the, this, the commemoration of World War II victory has always been quite a, a big and much revered holiday by uh, Russians far and wide of various political uh, leanings. And he's managed over the past decade or so to really hijack it uh, toward his own kind of uh, more um, macho, uh, 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 belligerent uh, goals. And in this particular case, there was very little mention of the heroes of World War II, and uh, it was couched almost completely in the ongoing war in uh, in in Ukraine. Well, there's no question that that he feels the peers diminished. And the real question, I guess, is what's going on with the Russian people? I mean, you just described this completely Orwellian speech where he talks about a country that he attacked attacking him, which is totally absurd. But presumably some percentage of the Russian people believe the ridiculous propaganda that's spewed out constantly. But do we know about what their real feelings are about this war? I mean, at some point or other, the reality has to be sinking in. And if this Ukrainian counteroffensive works uh, and they punch a hole through the Russian defenses, which the Russians are now building massive defenses and tank traps, etc., what then? Yes. Well, everybody's wondering that. Uh, I, it's my hope that uh, people in the, in the West and in Ukraine have the patience because this, is, uh, this counteroffensive, even if it is successful, is not going to be over a matter of days or even weeks, but really, really months. It's going to take some time. Um, but uh, the, it's, it's tough to do uh, public opinion polling in uh, totalitarian states particularly during times of war, when you get a call from a, a state polling agency and they ask you, what do you think? You're pretty much uh, thinking, what do they want me to say? That said, it's, uh, from what I can tell, there's a, uh, a, um, a, a minority, a solid minority of about 35 to 40% of uh, folks who uh, get most of their information from television and uh, are uh, happy with the current narrative that they're seeing on the, the evening talk shows uh, about this being really a, a defense of the of the of the Russian world and in eastern Ukraine and then there's a, a slim portion of people who are voting with their feet and leaving the country altogether and then a, a pretty a pretty big middle who uh, probably would if asked would not uh, would not want this to be the current state of affairs in Russia, but are uh, living decently enough that, and recognizing that it's dangerous enough to speak out against it, that they're pretty much keeping to themselves and going about their daily lives. Now, the question is, 
what will it take to really uh, put a dent in that and uh, uh, sending far more soldiers home in body bags might have an effect, uh, you know, uh, affecting the economy um, uh, more than it's being affected now may help. But both of these things take time and the, and the, and the state definitely recognizes that uh, it can't be too uh uh, garrulous in pursuing this war, which is why it has they haven't uh, declared a, a, a second mobilization uh, be, because they do not want to alienate the, the population um, who's uh, the majority of whom are willing to kind of just sit back and uh, and take it all in stride. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Michael Gorham, the speech was so sort of tortured and belligerent and paranoid that it almost could have been written by Nikolai Petrushev, Putin's national security advisor, who's a sort of rabid hawk. So mm. has Putin become more like Petrushev, or is this the real Putin? Uh, Petrushev uh, certainly uh, is echoing Putin, or Putin is echoing Petrushev. It's difficult to tell who's mirroring whom at, at this stage. Uh, Petrushev definitely has Putin's ear. In certain ways, he's uh, even more extreme than Putin. He had a an interview that came out in one of the main Russian newspapers earlier this week, in which he was claiming that the West had uh, had had its eyes on Ukraine because it's uh, he quoting a, an a, an Anglo uh, geographer from the 19th century calling Eastern Europe the heartland of Europe, and whoever controls that controls the world. He's uh, referring to uh, imminent volcano eruptions in Yellowstone National Park that's going to render two-thirds of the United States unusable, and so the country's going to be in, uh, in need of uh, additional territory. This is a mind that's kind of buried in conspiracy theories, and one hopes that uh, that uh, if Putin were to uh, go to his uh, great reward in, in the near future, that uh, it's not uh, Nikolai Patrushev who's going to be taking his place, that would be the one person that uh, I would probably fear the most. Uh, so there are some rumors that he's uh, tapped his son uh, to uh, to kind of be the successor, but th- that's that's purely on the level of, uh, of uh, rumors. Well, that's pretty bad <laughs> to believe that. Yeah. And you're talking about the geographer is what Sir Halford McKinder is that who he's referring that's to? That's it. That's exactly the man. Yes, you know, you know his theories. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thank you for joining us. Uh, this is uh, disturbing, but uh, not surprising. Yes, these are definitely troubling times, and uh, I would just urge patience on on the and persistent uh, support on uh, the part of anybody who's in a position to to help uh, Ukraine, because. Uh, this really is a pretty important and decisive battle, not just for Ukrainians, but for a, a lot of uh, Russians who are suffering unnecessarily as a result of uh, this one group of, uh, of men who are at the top. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I'll be speaking with Michael Gorham, who's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, After Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. And in addition, he has two co-edited volumes, 
Digital Russia, the Language, Culture and Politics of New Media Communication and the Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. And he's recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of Russian trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats and tweeting presidents. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into Sunday's important election in Turkey where the authoritarian kleptocrat Erdogan could be voted out but may not accept the results. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Elmira Bayrusli, who is the director of the Bard College Globalization and International Affairs Program and the CEO of Interrupter, a weekly foreign policy newsletter. And she has an article at CNN, Turkey's Erdogan is in the fight of his political life. The real winner may be Putin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Elmira Bayrusli. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's start with the ground rules, if you will, for the election itself. It's hardly a level playing field because Erdogan controls the media. He's jailed opposition leaders and journalists in extraordinary numbers. And um, I think actually the more popular opposition leader is in jail. So I'm not sure that the current opposition presidential candidate, Kilmal Kitsarulu, is necessarily the best candidate, but how is he doing in the polls as much as you can trust the polls? Well, as you point out, um, the the playing field is not level in Turkey. Um, in the 20 years that he has been pow- in power, uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has managed to shape government institutions to his will, Um, That includes not only the judiciary, the military, the foreign ministry, but very much so the media. I mean, his state essentially controls what can and cannot be said on on the news hour. He does jail journalists that criticize him. And as you pointed out, he has jailed opposition leaders. Um, The leader you were referring to is Seladin Demirtas, who is the head of the HDP, very charismatic, very popular not necessarily a, an enormous threat to Erdogan, but still someone who could challenge Erdogan's rule. In terms of Kılıçdaroğlu and his chances, Kılıçdaroğlu is referred to as the Turkish Gandhi. He is very professorial. He is the opposite of Erdogan. He is very soft-spoken and not antagonizing. He is probably not the preferred candidate, as you point out, but because Turkey's opposition parties, six of them, have all come together under something called the National Alliance. It looks like he is really giving Erdogan um, a run for his money. So one of the things that struck me in your article, Almira, is the notion that the coup attempt back in July of 2016 which was a, obviously an incompetent coup, that perhaps Erdogan blamed it to some extent on the Americans. I mean, he really did, of 
course, feel that his nemesis is the cleric who lives in Pennsylvania, who he's seem, Erdogan seems to be obsessed about. But the fact that during the coup, or shortly thereafter, the first person to call him was Vladimir Putin, and then, what, four days later, Obama called him. So is that really what cemented or caused his kind of drift away from the U.S. and NATO into the embrace of Russia? Um, Erdogan started out his, he became prime minister in 2003. And when he became prime minister, he was very much oriented towards the West. He had promised the Turkish public that he would apply to membership in the European Union and that he would fulfill the criteria that the Europeans had always been outlining for for Turkey. Um, that that started to change as Erdogan's rule went on. We started seeing the first signs um, of a turn away from both Brussels and Washington in in the early in, in 2010, 2011. There was a famous um, incident with the Israelis when the Israelis fired on a Turkish flotilla that had been um, trying to deliver aid to Palestinians. Um, and that's when you really see the first rupture also with that cleric, Fethullah Gulen, that you mentioned, who lives in, in the United States. So while Vladimir Putin was the first, one of the first leaders to call Erdogan and offer his support on the evening of July 15th, 2016. Um, the, the, the drift between Erdogan and the West had already begun. So obviously there's no way that the U.S. can have any fingerprints on any kind of opposition. So is there any help to the opposition coming from abroad? For example, the Turkish diaspora in Germany, which is a pretty significant vote, is it not? It's interesting because um, the Turkish diaspora worldwide is they don't, I mean, I think like voters anywhere, they, they don't vote in a single block. Um, much of the Turkish diaspora in Germany is actually very pro-AKP, very pro-Erdogan's party. Uh, the diaspora in the United States is very anti-Erdogan. Um, I think that you can see kind of where Erdogan focuses his attention. He has actually focused his attention on a lot of the European, um, the, Euro Tur the Turks in, in European um, capitals rather than the Turks here in, in the United States. Um you know, it's very, it's very unclear how much those votes will play a significance in, in Sunday's election. So I suppose it's a similar situation in this country with Donald Trump and the Republicans, because it's pretty clear that Donald Trump, as opposed to Erdogan being the victim of a coup attempt, Trump actually prosecuted a coup attempt against American democracy and appears to have little regard for a democracy and seems to have... A, an unusual affection for tyrants and kleptocrats. So is there a situation then similar that we, Trump is the front runner here for the Republicans and even a, a recent Washington Post-ABC poll said he's actually ahead of Biden in poll numbers. So do we have a similar situation here in the United States to Turkey? In other words, it's the same situation in Turkey where people support Erdogan 
and in doing so are not supporting democracy. It doesn't bother them that he is an authoritarian leader. I think that the people that are that follow Erdogan and that vote for Erdogan who are his core constituency are individuals that do not see him as an autocrat, but rather as quite the contrary, as a a Democrat who has brought them more rights, um, interestingly enough, more opportunities. I think before Erdogan came to power, Turkey had always followed the secular state model where there was a very firm division between, in this case, the mosque and the state. Um, Women were not allowed uh, to cover their hairs in in government positions or to attend public university. That's one thing that Erdogan reversed. And in many ways, you can argue that that is actually democratic to allow people to dress as as they choose. I think the people that will continue to vote for Erdogan will see him as someone who represents them, their identity as Muslims, as pious individuals, and as people who come from not necessarily the the elite, these are not wealthy people. They come from the quote-unquote underclass. Um, a lot of them live in the Anatolian countryside, and a lot of a lot of them have seen their standard of living rise with Erdogan's leadership. Early on, Erdogan did manage to turn turn Turkey's economy around. I think. The comparison with Trump is different in that Donald Trump only ruled for four years. And though he has a very, very um, loyal following among a certain group of people in the United States, I think in Turkey, even those people that do believe in Erdogan and do see him as, as, a, as someone who's bought them more rights, they are angry at the fact that Turkey's economy is not doing well. The Turkish lira has tanked. Inflation has been out of control for um, for several years, and I, I, their standard of living has declined. So I think even though people might admire Erdogan, I'm not necessarily sure they would be willing to vote for him. But Elmira, as your article at CNN, uh, Turkey's Erdogan is in a fight of his political life. The real winner may be Putin. It indicates that as bad as the economy is, it in many ways it's Putin and the Russians that's keeping them afloat with tourism and with cheap uh, gas prices or or actually deferred payment on on uh, natural gas, right? Well, it's, I mean, right, Turkey is, at, as I wrote in that piece, it's at a crossroads. It's not west, it's not east, And the reality is because Turkey's economy has not been growing, because it's been suffering inflation, it really does require uh, to focus in on on exports as well as imports, which include energy. And, And Russia is one of the top energy providers to Turkey. Putin has been supplying Turkey with natural gas on credit basically with the hopes that Erdogan will will eke out a win again on Sunday and continue to be one of the very few leaders in the world that engages with him. So what about the traditional enmity between the two countries? They've fought wars in the past. Are the Turkish people in any way uneasy 
that Erdogan is closer to Putin than he is to Biden? I mean, I think that when you take a look at Turkey's position in the world, as I just mentioned, it's at a crossroads. It borders Europe. It borders Iran, Iraq and Syria. It, it borders the Caucasus and it has Russia to the north. And so I, I think Turks are not are not blind to the fact that it has threats on all sides. The Europeans have not very, been very good allies to the Turks. Um, there's been historical animosities, not only with Russia, but with Greece as well. And I think this is one thing that Erdogan actually really understands about the Turkish psyche. He dials into nationalism when he sees that his popularity is waning. And one thing that resonates with the Turks, with, all, with, with a large portion of the Turkish population, is this threat to Turkey from outside forces, be it from the West, from Russia, or from elsewhere. So just in the last minute then, Elmira, how much does this devastating earthquake affect this election? Because no question that he didn't handle it well, Erdogan. So he must have lost a lot of support as a result of the devastation and the loss of life. There are a lot of people that are very angry, angry at the fact that the Erdogan government did not respond um, within a, immediately. Um, it took them several days to actually send in construction materials and rescue operations. Um, we'll see. We'll see on Sunday what, what the people say. A lot of the people that do support Erdogan, that have traditionally supported Erdogan, come from the regions where the earthquake had struck in February. And as we have seen since February, one of the reasons there has been such an enormous loss of life, about 60,000 people have died and a million have been displaced, is because Erdogan did not enforce construction codes. And he provided amnesty to builders and to develop um, apartment buildings that were not up to earthquake standards. So, I mean, the the polls say that he will not do well in those regions and that people are angry and they will vote against him. But we'll we'll see what happens on Sunday. So just in the last minute, though, will the count be fair? Will he try and do a Donald Trump and say he won when he lost? There is speculation that he might not accept the results. Um, there is precedent for that. He Erdogan did not accept the results of the 2018 mayoral election in Istanbul when the opposition candidate Ekrem Imamoglu won. Um, my guess is that Erdogan, Erdogan understands the Turkish population very well. And there's actually a very good piece in foreign policy um, by Gunil Tol, who is at the Middle East Institute, who talks about this and about how while Erdogan may control the media and elections may not be fair, there is very little evidence of fraud in Turkish elections. Um, and I think that Erdogan would really be um, really going out on a limb if he was going to go against the democratic will of the Turkish people. Well, Amira Barasli, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Elmira Bay-Rusley, who is the director of the Bard College Globalization and International Affairs Program and the CEO of Interrupter, a weekly foreign policy newsletter. And she has an article at CNN, Turkey's Erdogan is in the fight of his political life. The real winner may be Putin. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me One more light goes on